Please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, the advent of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And we refer to the Christmas season as the Advent season. Do you know why? Uh, the word Advent is derived from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. This Latin word referred to the arrival of some very important person. Who is this person whose coming, whose arrival we celebrate at Christmas? Why did he come and how did he come? Well, all four of our Gospels describe this Advent in some manner. As the Gospel of Mark describes the advent of the Messiah, it picks up with his baptism and the beginning of his public ministry. As Matthew and Luke describe the advent of the Messiah, they begin with his miraculous conception by the Virgin and his birth in Bethlehem. But when the Apostle John describes the advent of the Messiah, he goes back far, far earlier. And he begins his description of Christ's coming 
with eternity past to show us that Jesus is none other than the eternal God who created all things and then took on human form by his conception in Nazareth and then his birth in Bethlehem. The first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, known as the prologue to John's Gospel, are some of the most vivid and powerful descriptions of the glory, majesty, and deity of our Savior that we will find anywhere in all of the pages of Holy Scripture. John begins the prologue by reminding us that the Lord Jesus is God and he bears the very name of God. We see three times in just the first verse that Jesus is referred to as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Greek term here is logos, and interpreters have explained John's use of this term to refer to Jesus typically against the background of Greek philosophy. In the 6th century, a famous philosopher named Heraclitus argued that the logos, the word, was the eternal force that brought everything into existence. Heraclitus wrote, quote, the logos is always existent and all things happen through this logos, this word. Now, Heraclitus described the Logos as God, but we should really just spell that with a lowercase g. Because what he meant by this was not that the Logos was personal deity, but instead merely that the Logos was some kind of ultimate reality, some kind of impersonal force, kind of like the force of the Star Wars films the sustaining and organizing principle of the universe that gave the cosmos its order. Later on, the Greek Stoics would amplify this concept a bit. They would explain that the Logos is the supreme principle or force that originates, permeates, and directs all things. But although it's very, very common to find people arguing that this is the primary background to John's use of the phrase logos, I am not convinced. I tend to doubt that the Apostle John had ever read the philosophy of Heraclitus. He never once quotes the Greek philosophers in any of his works, that is, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Epistles of John, or the book of Revelation. He is instead steeped in the study of the Old Testament. He comes not from a Greek background, but from a Jewish background. And that's where we should look to understand this important concept that is premiered here in the prologue to John's Gospel. We know from the very first phrase that Genesis chapter 1 is an important part of the picture because John begins with the phrase, in the beginning, which you will recognize as the first 
phrase that introduces the entire Old Testament. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew text, the phrase Bereshith, which means in the beginning, is the title of the first book of the Bible. The Greeks referred to it as the book of Genesis, but the Hebrew-speaking people referred to it as Bereshith, simply the phrase in the beginning. So John is signaling to us from the outset that Genesis performs an important background for this phrase. Why? Well, in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, God created all created things through his powerful word. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke the universe into existence. That's why the psalmist will write in Psalm 33, 6 and say, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, the starry host by the breath of his mouth. And this word through which God created all created things is also the word with which the Father consults in the creation of humanity when he says, Let us, plural, Make man in our own image and after our own likeness. This word through whom he created the planets, the stars, the beast of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea is also the word with him he communed when he brought humanity into existence as well. Another important piece of the puzzle here comes from the Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Old Testament. You see, in the first century, during the time of the Lord Jesus and the Apostle John, many of the Jewish people in Judea and Galilee no longer spoke Old Testament Hebrew fluently. Hebrew had largely been replaced by a related dialect called Aramaic during the time of Christ. Now, the Hebrew scriptures were still read publicly in synagogue worship, but since many couldn't understand the Hebrew scriptures, a person called a Targumist would stand up and give a running Aramaic translation or paraphrase of the Hebrew text so that it would be understandable to everyone present. Later on, these Aramaic paraphrases or translations known as Targums would be written down. And we have a fairly large sample of these ancient Targums. And what is interesting is that the Targums were produced at a time when sensitivity toward keeping the third commandment, not taking the name of the Lord your God in vain, led to great hesitation about any use of the divine name. Now, I would argue that this is a misunderstanding of the third commandment. There's, there's a difference between using the name of the Lord with reverence and with a worshipful attitude versus taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. But 
First century Jews had such great qualms about any use of the divine name that they only allowed the high priest on the day of atonement in the Holy of Holies to speak the divine name or a local priest who was pronouncing the priestly blessing of numbers. The Lord bless you, keep you, make his face to shine upon you. For any other person at any other time, any other place to speak the divine name was considered by most to be blasphemy, a crime punishable by death. And so first century Jews typically used reverent substitutions for the divine name. One of the most common substitutions was simply Hashem, which means the name. And when you use that phrase, the name, every first century Jew knew that you were talking about the name that is above every other name, the divine name of the God of Israel, the name Yahweh or Jehovah. Another common substitution was simply the Holy One. But in the Aramaic Targums, one of the most common substitutions for reference to God is the Aramaic word memra, which would be translated into English as, guess what? The word. When you said the word, everyone knew that you were talking about the name that was so holy and was to be treated with such reverence that one would not ordinarily even speak it. I'll give you an example of this. The Hebrew text says in Exodus 19:17 that Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet God. But the Targum says Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with the word. Word is serving as a substitute for a direct reference to deity. And what's interesting is if you work through the prologue to John's gospel phrase by phrase by phrase, you will find that every description of the word in John 1, 1 through 18 appears in a description of the Memrah, the word, the God of Israel, in the Targums. For example, the word is described as in the beginning. The word is described as the one who was responsible for the creation of all things. The word is described as the source of light and life and so forth. And the point that I'm making is when John refers to the Lord Jesus as the word, he is unambiguously describing him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament who parted the waters of the Red Sea, who brought down the manna from the heavens, who brought the water from the rock, who brought the ten plagues down on the heads of the Egyptians, and so forth. By describing the Lord Jesus as the Word, he is clearly identifying him as Jehovah God, the great I am. That's going to become clear as the Gospel of John proceeds and we get to texts like John 8. And the Lord Jesus says, before Abraham was, I 
am. It doesn't say before Abraham was, I was, which you would expect if he were merely claiming to have existed before Abraham existed. He says before Abraham was, I am. And he is identifying himself by that statement as the great I am who spoke to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And Moses says, who will I tell the children of Israel sent me to them? And Yahweh replies, I am that I am. Tell the children of Israel, I am sent you to them. But we do not have to wait to John chapter 8 to see Jesus unambiguously identified as the great I am, the essence of the very meaning of the divine name Yahweh. Jesus is identified clearly as Jehovah in the very first verse of this gospel where three times Jesus is described as the Logos, the Memra, the Word who is God. Notice that the Word already existed in the beginning. In the beginning, of course, refers to the origin of all created things. The fact that the Word is already in the beginning implies that He is before any beginning. That is, He is without beginning. He is eternal. He has always been and will always be. John will express this very same concept in the book of Revelation where he describes Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. That is another clear reference to Jesus' great deity because the divine name I am means the eternally existent one. John will define it as the one who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. The description of Jesus as before the beginning, already existing in the beginning, expresses both his eternality and his deity. Notice also that Jesus, the Word, has a close personal relationship with God the Father. He continues, the Word was with God. The idea is that he is side by side with God the Father. Not as a subordinate, but as the Father's equal. Not as some lesser being, but as one who is completely equal in rank, status, and authority to God the Father himself. Think about it. There's no one else in all the universe who has the right to be with, that is, at the side of the Father. Even the highest ranking angels of heaven must bow down before him, not beside him, before him. Only Jesus is of such stature as to be at the Father's side. And not only does the expression imply Jesus' complete equality with God the Father, it also communicates his intimate personal relationship 
with God the Father. We'll see that especially in John 1.18, where the apostle says that he is at the Father's side. That's the ESV. But the expression that is used here is the very same one that is used to speak of Jesus' embrace of the beloved disciple, the apostle John, at the Last Supper in John 13, 23. The King James translated is, is in the bosom of the Father. The idea is his head is against the Father's chest as the Father embraces the Son. The point is that throughout eternity, the Father and Son coexisted as complete equals and in an unbreakable holy bond with one another. And not only does John say that Jesus is eternal, that he has a unique relationship with the Father, he ends up this first verse by saying clearly and emphatically, the word was God. Now you probably know that the Jehovah's Witnesses, like their predecessors, the ancient Aryans, have attempted to revise the meaning of this verse. They, in their New World Translation, render it, the word was a God, and then spell the word God with the lowercase g, in order to indicate that he is less than full deity. By this they mean that Jesus the Word is an exalted spiritual being, the first and greatest of God's creatures, but merely a creature, not the creator. Someone who came into being rather than one who is truly eternal. And they base this incorrect translation on a misunderstanding of Greek grammar. They argue that the Greek text lacks the definite article ha, which we would translate the, in front of the word theos, or God. And they argue that the absence of the definite article implies the presence of an indefinite article. And so they plug in the word a. The word was a God. But this is a terrible distortion of the rules of ancient Greek grammar. The fact is, when a predicate nominative, like God in this case, is shifted out of its normal position at the end of a sentence, it normally lacks the definite article even when it's definite. In this case, even when it's referring to God with a capital G, the God. So the real question to ask is not why there is no the in front of the word God in the Greek text. The real question to ask is why was the word God shifted out of its ordinary position at the end of the sentence to the very beginning of this clause? And the answer is clear. By shifting a word out of its normal position to the head of the clause, an ancient Greek writer put great emphasis or stress on that particular word. 
It was as if in ancient Greek, the word God was underlined multiple times, or it was put in a bold font or an italic font, or maybe highlighted with the bright colorful marker. It was like putting multiple exclamation points after the word God. So that when an ancient Greek reader encountered John 1.1, this would be the effect of what he read. It would be, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. My point is that the Jehovah's Witnesses and the ancient Arians have diminished the very thing that the Apostle John most wants to stress. His emphasis is on the deity of the Lord Jesus, his identity as Almighty God. One of the early Christian reader, uh, leaders that we honor this time of year in the Christmas season was St. Nicholas, the Bishop of Myra. Known today, I guess somewhat irreverently, as jolly old St. Nick. The bishop, who is a true historical person, by the way, was known for two primary things. First of all, he was known for his generosity. At the death of his parents, he inherited a large estate, which he liquidated, and then he used all of those financial resources for the benefit of the poor. One of the famous stories told by his earliest biographer, Michael, was that the bishop had found out that some people in his area were in such dire poverty that a man's three daughters were about to be forced into prostitution. In order to marry, you had to have a significant amount of money to offer as a dowry. And since they could not afford a dowry, they were going to be forced into a life of abuse. And St. Nicholas found out about this. And so one night he sneaked up to the house and he dropped a small bag of gold through the window and fled away before anyone would even know he was there. And the father was able to use that amount of money to provide a dowry for one of the daughters. Then discovering that the poor man had used those resources well, the next night he dropped another bag of gold through the window, rescuing yet another daughter. And then the third night he did the very same thing, though this time the father was waiting to see who his benefactor was and discovered that it was the Bishop of Myra, old St. Nicholas, rescuing his daughters from a horrible, horrible future. But not only was St. Nicholas known for his generosity, he was also known for his orthodoxy. He was the Bishop of Myra in the late third and early fourth century, and this was the time of the Arian controversy. The Arians were those who argued that Jesus, the Son of God, was a created being, not the Creator, that He was a temporal being, not an eternal being, and the church had formed the Nicene Council to debate this issue, led by the champion of orthodoxy, Athanasius, 
The council ultimately produced what we know as the Nicene Creed, which insisted upon the deity of the Lord Jesus as clearly articulated everywhere in the New Testament, but especially in this prologue to the Gospel of John. The Nicene Creed said, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same substance with God the Father, and through him all things were made. And according to our three earliest list of the attendees at the Nicene Council was St. Nicholas of Myra. As a matter of fact, according to one account, St. Nicholas became so frustrated by the blasphemies of one of the other Arian church leaders that he slapped the man in his disgust. And because he slapped a fellow bishop, the Emperor Constantine actually stripped him of his mitre and his pallium, that is, the, the crown and the staff that marked the authority of a Christian bishop back in this day. Obviously, I'm not saying that we should go around slapping heretics. Uh, for, for one thing, we would wear our arms out these days. But I do appreciate the fact that this was a man who stood for orthodoxy in the face of a grave and very dangerous heresy in the early church. And when we remember this man and his legacy this time of year, we should remember him not just for his generosity, not just for starting this trend of gift giving during the Christmas season. We should remember him also for his high view of the Lord Jesus Christ for his recognition that Jesus is the incarnation of almighty God who is worthy of all our worship. John goes on to say that the eternal word who is with God and is God is the creator of all created things. He says in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He goes on to mention light and life as originating through the work of Jesus Christ, the eternal word. The Apostle Paul is going to affirm the very same truth in his great hymn about Christ in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. There he reminds us, as he describes Christ, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, all things were created by him and for him him. Then John explains to us that the Lord Jesus is the Savior. He laments the fact that when the Creator came to his creation, the creation rejected him. He says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But then he adds, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
He gave the right to become children of God. Now, John's already explained that the Lord Jesus, the Word, is the source of life. In Him was life. And, and that means on one level that He is the one who granted life to all living things. As I've already said, the beast of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and then even humanity itself. Jesus is the one with whom the Father spoke in Genesis 1, and 27 when he said, let us make man in our plural image and after our plural likeness. It was Christ himself who knelt in Eden's dust and formed man's body of the dust of the earth and breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life so that he could become a living soul. But now, John helps us understand that Jesus is not only the source of all physical life. He is the one who imparts spiritual life. Jesus is not only the author of creation, he is the author of new creation. He is the one who imparts the spirit of God to those who believe so that their lives can be transformed from the inside out. He says, as many as received him, to them he gave authority to become children of God. Now let me remind you, despite the old doctrine of the liberals, the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, this idea that we're all one great big happy spiritual family and God is the father of us all, the New Testament clearly teaches that the rebellious sinner is not the friend of God or the child of God, but actually at enmity with God. For us to be God's children, we who are alienated from him must be reconciled to him. And John is telling us that Jesus is the one who takes the enemies of God and makes them children of God. He reconciles us to God so that we can have a relationship with him. But if that were all John wanted to say, he could have expressed it another way. He could have said that we are adopted by God the Father. That would give us all the rights and privileges of being sons and daughters of God. But he doesn't express that way. Notice he explains it using the concept of birth. He says, we receive the right to become children of God, but we were born, not adopted, we were born. How? Not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. We were given birth by God. Now, why does he insist that we become sons and daughters of God by birth and not merely by adoption? That's because he wants to make it clear that when we are become sons and daughters of God, we not only receive a new relationship with him, we partake of a new resemblance to him. An adopted child and a child by biological birth are alike in very many ways. The parents will love the adopted child just as much. The adopted child will have all the same legal privileges. But there is one difference. 
the biological child will resemble the biological parents in many ways that an adopted child will not. Why? Because of the laws of genetics. Because of that old principle based on our DNA, like father, like son, like parent, like child. And so what John is stressing here is that Jesus, our Savior, doesn't just put us in right relationship with God. By his transforming power, he changes us so that we resemble the Heavenly Father in our character and in our behavior. He's going to explain that in John 3 when he explains spiritual birth to Nicodemus. He'll say that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. And his point is the children partake of the nature and characteristics of the parent. And his point is we who were born of fleshly parents will have a fleshly nature. But when we are given birth by the Holy Spirit of God, we partake of his holy character. That's why John explains in 1 John 3, 9, everyone who has been born of God does not keep on with their sinful lifestyle. Why? Because God's seed remains in him. Notice that he's using the language of birth and genetics, resemblance brought about by our conception. He says the believer is not able to persist in his sinful lifestyle because he has been born of God. And John tells us what is necessary to experience this new birth. Who become children of God? Who are born of God? It is those who believed, what? In his name. You might say, well, why does he mention his name? Because the name Jesus hasn't been used yet in this entire account. That's because the name he's referring to here isn't Jesus. It's the name that we saw three times in verse 1. It's that name Logos, Memra, Word, which is the reverent substitution of the divine name Jehovah. And what John is telling us is, in order to experience this miracle of spiritual birth, we must believe that Jesus is what his name claims about him. We must recognize that he is none other than the incarnation of Almighty God. And in case we had any doubt about that, the Lord Jesus is going to make it clear in his high priestly prayer in John 17. Verse 11, he says to the Father, keep them in your name. He's praying to the Father, and he refers to your, that is the Father's name. What is that name? It's Yahweh, Jehovah. But look at how he continues. He says, keep them in your name, which you gave to me. In other words, Jesus shares the very same divine name as God the Father, the divine name Yahweh or Jehovah. And to make sure we don't miss it, the Lord Jesus repeats it again in the very next verse, your name which you gave to me. This is so important that John will say one of the primary purposes of his entire gospel is to insist that Jesus is God who bears the very name of God. He says, there's so many things Jesus did that if I had attempted to record them, it would, 
The books of the world could not contain them. But then he adds, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life through his, his name. The name is all important in the Gospel of John, and that name has already been introduced to us here in the prologue. It is the Word. It is that reverent substitution for the divine name, Yahweh, Jehovah. But not only is the Lord Jesus our Savior, Jesus is the Revealer. And John begins to stress that in verse 9 when he describes Jesus as the true light. He's given us an explanation in which John is like a lamp, but Jesus is the light. John came to bear witness about the light, but Jesus is the light that John came to testify about. Uh, what does he mean by this description that Jesus is the light? Well, the light is that which illuminates us. It's what gives us sight and understanding. And when Jesus is compared to John the Baptist in this way, the point that John is making is all of the old prophets, from Moses all the way up to the time of John the Baptist, were like lamps. But Jesus is the light. They came to bear witness about the light, but Jesus is that light that they testified about. The point is that Jesus is supreme to all of the Old Testament prophets because he is not merely a prophet of God. He is the God of the prophets. John is articulating the same thing that the author of Hebrews would. In Hebrews 1, when he says, Long ago God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But in these last days, this climactic period of history, he has spoken to us by his son. And then the author of Hebrews will go on to say that Moses and the Old Testament prophets were servants of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus is as superior to them and the revelation they offered as Son is to servant. Why? John will explain in verse 14. He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word is Almighty God, Yahweh, Jehovah, become flesh means to assume human form, not merely take on a human body, but assume full humanity. The Almighty God wrapped himself in human flesh and was born into the world as a man. That's why early Christians referred to the Lord Jesus as the God-man, fully human and fully divine. This is the incarnation, the advent of the Messiah. 
And then John portrays this incarnation using a beautiful image. He says, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, the verb translated as dwelled in the ESV is the Greek verb skenao. It literally means to pitch a tent or to set up a tabernacle. So we could legitimately translate it, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Why is that so significant? Well, it's because the tabernacle, the tent of meeting in Old Testament times, is the place where God met with humanity in order to reveal himself to them. The tabernacle was the place where the glory of God would descend so that humanity could encounter it. When John says the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us, he is describing the humanity of Jesus Christ as like that tent or tabernacle that housed the very glory of God. And if somebody says, well, that's reading a lot into that specific Greek verb. No, look at the context. The word was made flesh and tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John is describing Jesus' humanity as the tabernacle in which the glory of God resides. Similar thing will happen on the lips of the Lord Jesus himself in John chapter 2. The Lord Jesus will say, tear down this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. The people get upset because they think he's talking about the temple that Herod constructed. But John explains he was referring to the temple of his body. In John 1, Jesus' body is the tabernacle in which the glory of God resides. John chapter 2, Jesus' body is the temple in which the glory of God resides. This theme will permeate the writings of the gospel uh, writer from the gospel of John through the epistles of John all the way up to the final verses of the book of Revelation because as John describes our eternity he says I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. What he's saying is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is the one who will illuminate the heavenly city, and it is his glory that fills the eternal temple. But not only does the Apostle John explain that Jesus is the one who embodies and reveals the glory of God, he explains that Jesus is the one who embodies and reveals the very character of God. He says, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. What? Full of grace and truth. Very important phrase. The supreme revelation of God in the entire Old Testament appears in Exodus 33 and 34. That's where Moses says to Jehovah, Lord, let me see your glory. 
a prominent word here in this portion of the prologue, glory. God replies, no one can see my face and live. What God is saying is, Moses, you could not withstand, you could not survive the full display of my glory. And so God places Moses in the cleft of a rock, covers that cleft with his hand. He passes by and he allows Moses to see only the after effects, the outer fringes of the divine glory. And that alone was such a dramatic experience that Moses' face was transfigured and he reflected the very glory of God to the extent that it frightened all who looked upon him. After this display of the after effects of the divine glory, God goes on to explain to Moses the essence of his character. And this is what he says, Exodus 34, 6. Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. Now, did you notice that phrase, rich, in faithful love and truth? In Hebrew, it's verav kesed ve'emet, which could be translated into Greek using the very same phrase that we find in John chapter 1, which is rendered in the ESV, full of grace and truth. Kesed means grace, emet means truth, full of grace and truth. Here's my point. John has just explained that Jesus is the true tabernacle and temple of God that reveals the glory of God to an extent that even Moses himself could not experience in Exodus 33 and 34. And then he goes on to show that Jesus is the one who embodies and reveals the full character of God. He is that compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth. And then as he continues to explain how Jesus is the one who reveals God, he goes on to say, still remembering Moses' experience in Exodus 33 and 34, no one has seen God at any time. Moses himself was unable to see God in all of his glory. No one has seen God at any time, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, some of your translations may refer to Jesus here not as the one and only God, but as the one and only Son. And there's a reason for that. Our ancient manuscripts of the Greek New Testament differ here. Some use the phrase monogenes huios, <clears throat> one and only son. Others monogenes theos, one and only God. Our oldest and best manuscripts are the ones that are followed by the ESV. 
Monogenes Theos, Jesus is the one and only God. He is God, the one and only. Now, you might remember that the heart of ancient Judaism was the claim of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Against the background of ancient Jewish monotheism, the clearest way to express the truth that Jesus is fully and truly God was to refer to him as God, the one and only, the only God. This identified him distinctly as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who created everything that exists. With this climactic statement, the Apostle John makes it abundantly clear that that baby born in Bethlehem was the incarnation of full and true deity. The advent that we celebrate in this Christmas season is not just the coming of a king. It's not just the coming of a savior. Is it, a, it is a divine visitation. It is the arrival of God into the world. We celebrate that with many of our Christmas hymns. One of my favorites, though I, for reasons that baffle me, it's often attacked. One of my favorites is the modern hymn, Mary, Did You Know? The final verse says, Mary, did you know your baby boy has walked where angels trod? When you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. The hymn is reminding us of the fact that Jesus is the incarnation, the embodiment of deity. Another favorite is Charles Wesley's old hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which says, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Sadly, there are many people all around us who think all we celebrate this Christmas season is the birth of a cute and cuddly baby in Bethlehem's manger. In our survey work at the Christian College in Louisiana, we found that though 98% of our students claimed to be Christians, a third of them did not know that Christianity affirms the deity of the Lord Jesus. They thought that Jesus was just an ordinary man who was endowed with special power by the Holy Spirit. They had no concept of the essential Christian truth that Jesus is almighty God in human form. And yet John has made it clear, there is no salvation apart from that confession that Jesus is Almighty God. How is it that we are born again, that we're born from above and brought into right relationship with God 
and receive his own holy character. It is by believing in Jesus' name, the name which is above every other name, the divine name, Yahweh, Jehovah, the name of the Almighty God. That's why the Lord Jesus will say later in the Gospel of John, unless you believe I am, that is, I am the great I am, you will die in your sins. The point that is made is it's not just enough to believe that Jesus is the Savior who died on the cross for our sins and our place. It's not just enough to believe that Jesus is a great king who has the right to rule and reign over our lives. We must also affirm that Jesus is the incarnation of deity. As the ancient Christians explained, true God of true God. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If you've not made that confession, I invite you to make it now. It may be that you've been a member of a church for a long, long time, but you never understood who Jesus truly is. And for the first time today, you've recognized that Jesus' humanity is the tabernacle and temple that house the full glory and character of God. That he is himself, God, the one and only. And if that's your confession, in a few minutes when we sing together, I invite you to come forward and tell one of our church leaders about your confession of faith in Jesus Christ so that you can receive the gift of new birth, the forgiveness of sin, the promise of being transformed from an enemy of God and to the friend and child of God. Dear Father, we thank you for the clarity of the gospel message. We thank you for this powerful, profound explanation of who Jesus truly is that we find in these first 18 verses of John's gospel. Move us to affirm these truths with all of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.